Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Urban Mendoza. This is Jason Ortiz. And welcome to another episode of the Us Against the World podcast. Welcome, everybody. We're back on another episode here with Us Against the World. Uh, you know, today we have a very special guest. Her name is Belinda de la Libertad. You know, she's originally from San Antonio. She's now residing here in Orange County with us, and she's a strong advocate for freedom and justice for all. She's also a founder of A2Z Techs, president also of Avanza Network, and a chair of the board for Cielo. We want to welcome her to our podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for, of course, joining us today. You know, it's a very hot day today. Uh, spring officially kicked in. Um, it feels like summer, though. I'm not going to lie. Um, and I'm still wearing black, so I don't know why I do that to myself. But thank you for coming. You know, it, it's an honor. Um, you know, we've known each other for, I would say, like two years now through our network, of course. And it's good to see you again. You know, I want to, you know, start off, you know, like we always do. You know, what are you doing now? You know, we kind of give you a resume or we, we let our, our, our listeners a little bit of what you are founding, you're the president, but no, tell us more about you. Currently, I am running my company, A to Z Techs, but in the last two years, I've actually become a lot more involved in a few startup companies, and I'm really enjoying that experience. I didn't do startups when I was young, like a lot of my peers did. I'm just now getting into it. So that's been very exciting, and in the near future, I can see the possibility of transitioning from my full-time work at A to Z Techs to just really diving all in on the startups and handing the the management of my of my original company to right. someone else and I think, see what yeah. I can do with these startups and how far they can go. That's true. And I think it also, you need to build yourself up in order to start helping others, I think. So right. expand I think my portfolio. expand your exactly. So you have to do your own thing. I think me and Irvin have done that where Irvin, he doesn't interpret anything. He was focused on that for like four years, what is life, three years. And now he's willing to now expand on other stuff, like socially, uh, whether it comes also with his hobbies and stuff like that. And same here. You know, obviously, we go through the route of college four years, and then now we can expand. So we need to work on ourselves, and then why not, you know, yeah. start helping others. Are these the ones that you were meant with that I mentioned in the beginning, these uh, these startups? Um, which ones are you helping out right now, or which one are Actually, you? Actually, um, those are things I'm doing in addition to ah, my okay. in addition to my regular day job or, you know, my income-generating activity. The Avanza Network and Cielo are both purely volunteer. Okay, okay. Those are causes, those are organizations that, that advance the cause that I really care about, which is self-determination. Mm-hmm. The ability for people to, to enjoy, to access a path to self-determination. Uh, I do that through my work with Avanza and Cielo. They're a little bit different from each other in that the uh, the audience for those groups are, are different, but they're connected. So, for example, Avanza Network is a group of Latino alumni okay. from over 20 colleges and universities who focus on mentoring uh, current college students as well as giving advice to high school students who are interested in going to college. Right. So it's a, okay. it's a focus of youth primarily. And just giving them tips and, and opportunities for advancing themselves, whether it's education or career. Right. Cielo Network, on the other hand, or Cielo Community, is really a group that focuses on a lot of the families oh. of those students in the first group. So, for example, moms and dads 
who are looking for a way to help boost their income, which means getting new job skills, right? Learning new skills to apply for a better job or getting help starting a small business like or taking, you know, a side gig or some hustle and making it a formal business. And in our community, I know you guys are aware that we have a lot of talent and a lot of value that we add to whatever community we're in because you know where we are. Child care, right. landscaping, mm-hmm. cleaning, catering, the list goes on and on. And a lot of times our families are doing that very informally. And something I've seen over the years in my work here in Orange County is that there are people who provide that work to clients in certain cities or areas of, of the community and without that formal business structure in place, sometimes they don't get paid. Right? Sure, yeah. Like, oh, I don't know how to invoice. Oh, I don't know how to do receipts. Oh, you know, whatever it is that the client might ask for. So we help small mom and pop teams like that get it a little more structured. Okay. So that, you know, if they're going to do like the tacos at some kid's birthday party and there's going to be 100 people, they can be like, you know, he's done me invoice. Mm-hmm. Right. And they get paid. And do you find them or do they find you? That's a good question. Mostly they find us. It's It's been a lot of word of mouth. Only in the last year have we been building up um, our marketing efforts to find them. And that's something that we're going to be advancing as we go forward. Uh, we just had a successful fundraiser this week that we're super happy about because we hit our goal. And some of that money is going to go towards our outreach okay. in our communities. Um, right now, we have clients in Santana, Anaheim, Garden Grove, Westminster, um, Huntington Beach. I don't know if you're familiar with Oakview neighborhood from Huntington no, Beach. No, no. Um, it's like a tiny little. There's Latinos out there. Yes. Okay. Yes. I think Huntington Beach. No, I don't think. I know. Okay. No one thinks that. Every, <laughs> okay. Everyone thinks that they're that we're not there, but we right. okay. we are. But even all the way down to um, South County, believe it or not. Okay, okay. So there are these pockets, and we're connecting the pockets. Mom and dad can pay the bills, can buy the groceries, so their kids can focus on school. That's a good. That's you know, very a lot noble, of us yeah. when we're young, we end up also going to work to help our parents. If the parents need help, and and a lot of us professionals in the community, we go out and say things like "stay in school," right? Graduate. Well, if we're going to say that, we need to support really the whole family to make mm-hmm. that happen. How does the family? Just the kid. How does the family respond? Like when you come knocking on their door, like, "Hey, we want to help you. You're gonna help me." Like, what are you gonna get out of yeah, it? What is Does that happen sometimes? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a great question. We haven't had that experience yet, but probably only because we haven't tried that particular method yet. Mm-hmm. I I suspect if we did, we would get that kind of reaction. What we've done instead is we partner with a lot of other nonprofits that are already working with people, whether it's um, say Latino Health Access in Santana or Delhi Center also in Santana. Um, We'll partner with organizations if they see that there are clients that have a particular need that they can't help with, like workforce uh, job skills, then they'll tell that client, oh, you know, these good people over at Cielo can help you out with that. You want to learn how to use a computer. You want to learn how to, you know, take online, right? Uh, The big one, the big trend in the last two years has been online payments or mobile payments, right? Of course. I mean, yeah. Especially now during COVID. Yeah. Yes. Especially during COVID, um, all the carts, the uh, mm-hmm. right, the food carts, the food trucks, everybody wants wants online payment now. So we've helped a lot of people do that, and and just a lot of word of mouth because you probably know this, but 
I'll validate it for you in case you always suspected mm-hmm. it. One thing about Latinas is that once we experience something good, we tell everybody. Oh, yeah. We no, tell I everybody. Agree. We tell all our <laughs> comadres, right? The whole neighborhood, our sisters, our tias. So we just had a few in the early days and then phew, wildfire. Right. So in our first year in at Cielo, which was 2015, and it wasn't even the whole year because I remember we opened the doors in the middle of the year. So about six months. In our first year, we helped about maybe 60 families. Whereas last year in 20, uh, well, 2019 is the most recent data that I have. 2019, we helped almost 800 families. Definitely. Wow. To, to, yeah. Definitely expanded for sure. Yeah. And 80% of those people that came to us like on behalf of the family were women, were the moms. Oh, wow. Yeah. What do you say about that? Yeah, because I know that's, a, that's an, an interesting data because um, I see it with my mom too. And I used to see it with like my stepdad. So muy orgullosos, you know, very prideful. So it's usually the women that are like, you know what, you go ask the office, you go ask, you yeah. do the payments, you go do the uh, the rent payment, for example, or go get the money order, go to the store. Like that happens. Why? Why is that? Why do you? Why do you suspect eighty percent is mo- mainly women? Um, that's a great question. I'm gonna say of most of those women, they're probably also mostly moms, mm, okay. because once okay. a woman is in charge of other people's lives. Her children, whom she loves more than anything, exactly. she's just gonna. She's gonna hustle it out. She's gonna hustle it. She's yeah, gonna get ways. it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and setting side, uh, setting pride aside, is no big thing for no, a woman. No, no. For a woman, she will put the pride aside if it means that her children are going to be able to benefit. I think she'll do it a lot more quickly. Now, there's a huge difference, or historically at least, there's been a big difference in the role that a Latina mom and a Latina dad play, not only within the family, but like out mm-hmm. in the public, right? Um, so it may not be as easy or as uh, the path might be, might not be as clear for a father to go and say, okay, I need to go to that place and get help. Yeah. But the moms, they'll just do it. And the great thing about that is, like I said, once they start realizing the benefit, they not only bring it back to the whole family, but they bring it back to the whole neighborhood, right? right. The neighbors, and and then we just get more and more interest. There was a really interesting workshop we had um, right before COVID hit, back in the end of 2019. It was a workshop about um, getting a loan to start your small business. Okay. And I was invited to attend as a board member to observe how well the program's going. And it was a bilingual workshop, right? English, Spanish, with uh, some representatives from Orange County Credit Union. And by the way, I'm a big fan of credit union, so I was excited about that. Right. So the Orange County Credit Union was going to be there, and I thought, on my way to the event, I thought, I hope it's not a low turnout. It's not a very exciting topic. It's not the kind of topic that people get really, like, oh, yeah, I got to go learn about right. small business finance. It's like healthcare mainly. They go for, like like you said, learning English, for example. Right, Stuff right. like that, yeah. So I was crossing my fingers that it was going to be a, a decent turnout and that the the staff, right, the instructors were not going to come to me afterward and say like, oh, we're sorry, the turnout's so low. When I got there, to my surprise, not only was it a great turnout, but there were people literally lined up outside the door, like trying to hear what was going on inside. Wow. Like it was standing room only practically. So that told me that the interest is really high. Right. And what we were doing, because nobody else is doing it or very few people are doing it in Spanish, right? It was just packed, and a 
um, part of the room was a computer lab. So there were already some people there putting their little spreadsheet budget together, right? The woman who came from the credit union was also bilingual. And she had a whole line of people asking her questions. And these were mostly women, probably between 30 and 40. Some had brought their children with them because they didn't have any childcare. It was a nighttime thing. So they had their kids there and everybody was cool with it. Because why? Almost everybody there was a mom. It's like, oh, is that bien? You know, just Mm -hmm. put them over there on the side. And um, it was beautiful. It was great. It made me very excited to be a part of that organization. And it also gave me that, um, right, like that thirst to keep it going. Like, oh, okay, we can do this. Let's do another one bigger or more. We assured you, yeah, that it's going well and we can only expand on this and help out more. That's good. And then COVID hit. So now we, uh, like everyone else, had to pivot and are working hard to bring a lot of those workshops and sessions online. It's been very rewarding. Um, I want to continue seeing Cielo succeed. And we're in a process right now of growing our board of directors and expanding expanding the reach. We have partnered with a group in uh, Riverside. We're bringing in, it's a group called One IE. Okay. And we're bringing them in too because they have a lot of the same challenges right out there that we have here. Um, but they have even more of a challenge with everything being so far apart. Right, like geographically. Right. Here, I mean, yeah, we complain like, oh, it's 45 minutes to get from Brea to Newport or whatever. But over there, it's like, it's more rural for sure. Yeah, it's very far, very widespread. So we're working with them and also with a couple of groups in LA, in LA County. Right. So we're just growing and growing. You know, you said it was a volunteer kind of thing that you were doing in a way. You know, what what made you, there's something in your heart, you know, there's something that you maybe brought from your past, you know, obviously you grew up Latino with Latino family as a Latina, you know, what made you choose these specific um, programs to help and be part of? That's a fair question. Um, and I'm assuming, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great, <laughs> uh, that's a fair question because I've, you're not the first one to ask. People wonder like, oh, why aren't you doing, you know, something with STEM or with my background, which is a very mm-hmm. technical background. A lot of us, in the technology world are really championing the whole STEM STEM programs and program exactly. and wave and all that. And that is true. I could be doing that. There are already a lot of other people doing that. Right. I tend to look for spaces where there's not enough people, where there's not enough people working on that issue. And I know that if I go in there, I'm usually going to end up doing the work of two or three people. Cause you know how we do that. <laughs> so then I come in there and get involved Primarily what I've seen over the course of my lifetime from, you know, going all the way back to even my grandmothers, because we used to live multi-generational, just like a lot of Latino families do, right? I remember living with uh, my, it was us, with my grandparents, and even my great-grandma lived there with us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just every generation in the house contributed in some way. My my abuelita uh, Lola, she was my great grandmother. She didn't work outside the house, obviously, but she was on like tortillas twenty four seven. Like she was just constantly churning out all the tortillas and the frijoles. And then my grandma, she was laundry and I don't know, other things around the house, right? The and system, then, yeah. Exactly. It was a whole. It was a whole little ecosystem in there. There was always tortillas. And then my mom was the one who worked outside the house, who had the paycheck job, and she was like in charge of the bills. Right. Electric, phone, 
um, us kids, we were supposed to do well in school and, you know, not get into too much trouble. Uh, yeah. exactly, that was your exactly. job. <laughs> that was my job. <laughs> and, of course, the dads, all the men worked outside the house. Mm-hmm. So it was a an economy, a multi-generational economy at a micro scale. Right. And while it didn't make us wealthy, it worked for survival, right? Exactly. What's happened in the modern age is a lot of us have moved away from living together. And when we've moved to this shift of living separately, it's harder because now it's two or three households, basically two or three rents, two or three utility bills, two or three, whatever. And people can be more strained that way. And when I learned about Cielo, I saw it as an opportunity to help not realign so much, but as, as much as I found it an opportunity to help families coalesce their resources in a way that benefits everybody in the family, not just uh, the way we think, the way Americans think is the individual. individual Everything's individual, right? You want to go through some program to get a scholarship, or whatever. Usually they're focused on just you, the participant. But that's not how culturally mm-hmm. our experience is. I can't imagine really ever having done anything growing up where it focused on or benefited only me and not my brothers coming up behind me. Right. Or, or even, I can't even imagine that for my mom, doing something that benefited just her and like nobody else in the family. Mm-hmm. So my feeling was that if that's not our reality, why do we have programs that try to divorce our reality our home reality from, um, try to divorce our home reality from what we're expected to present to the world as this superhuman individual who exists in a vacuum. Mm, That's true. We don't exist in a vacuum. We will never exist in a vacuum. So let's work with reality. Reality is, okay, we want kids to do well in school. Then for them to do well in school, they need to have at least a, a basically uh, healthy, hopefully healthy, but if not healthy, at least sustainable home life. Right. For them to have a sustainable home life, those parents need to have money. For those parents to have money, they need to have jobs. You know? And we have a lot of partners with other nonprofits. We, partners, we have a lot of partnerships with other nonprofits so that if the family needs something that we don't have, for example, counseling, th- there's a lot of you know problems with, alcohol or with addiction, with uh, domestic violence. So if we need to refer our families to a counseling service, we already have that partnership lined up. Right. And, and what's great about working with our families is that once they develop trust in one group, and that's the hardest part. First, you have to get the trust. If you don't have the trust, you don't have anything. Right? So once the trust is developed, they're more willing to be open to other services. Something that uh, I find interesting with what you said about a good household is uh, having a job, having money and all that stuff. Safe. Yeah, the word I was looking for was safe. Mm -hmm. Safe household. Another factor that I also would pay attention because where I used to live in Park Lane, Anaheim, I don't know why, but I would observe and study the households around me, like the families and all that stuff. And something that I would notice is that low-income families equals the house. There's like two or three families living there. And they're not even related. They're just... Hey, we can't afford rent, so we're going to have to rent the bedroom to another family or, 
mm-hmm. or for like a dad and his son, something like that. And then other households, uh, the parents would have two jobs because they need to make ends meet. So now mom and dad are not, uh, are not there in the afternoon or they're not there in the morning. And since you work in this, you know how that affects a kid's mind going to school, getting good grades because they don't see their parents there. Or they don't see it as, oh, I'm not going to try hard enough because of X, Y, and reason. All that plays a factor in how the kid's life turns out in the future. So you doing this, you you helping out from the beginning, giving resources to avoid all that, it's um it's admiring. Yeah, it's commendable for sure. Thank you, thank you. Yes, that situation you described is has kind of become the the contemporary version of the multi-generational family. Instead of it being multi-generations within one family, we've got multiple families living together to play this survival game. Exactly. Right? Um, I don't know if you're aware, but just a couple of years ago, I want to say two years ago maybe, there was a new development, a new housing development that was announced in Berea, which is a few minutes north of here. That is a multi-generational family neighborhood. Okay. So, So somebody's finally getting with it and getting it together and figuring out, oh, there could just be one big house for two or three of these related families. And just have them all together, which is a good, um, it bodes well for, for the future of this region with it being very Latino, mm-hmm. right? I mean, our numbers are growing demographically. Right. And I can't tell you how many times my husband and I have looked at each other and said, why don't our moms just live with us? You know, and we talked to them and they're like, oh, you know, it's tu casa. And they, you know, want to try and keep boundaries Crazy. and all that <laughs> because that's the American part, right? The American part has seeped in and influenced our, our families too. But in in a neighborhood like this one that they designed, it's separate, like a, more like a, um, more like a duplex, duplex triplex yeah, okay, okay. kind of thing, but it looks like one house. That is brilliant. And, and you know, it's also true in the Asian, in the Asian community too. They're very, very tight knit family, yeah. family wise. So once I recognized that there were so many people I could help with the knowledge and the experience that I have, it just turned on a light yeah. bulb, right? Just It just sparked a flame in me, and, and it hasn't died since. And that probably started when I was teaching uh, bilingual computer classes for Santiago Community College. Okay. I was doing that about 20 years ago. A lot of great students, a lot of them new immigrants, mostly from Mexico, but some from South America. And seeing that what I was doing, which for me was very basic, basic knowledge for me, because I had been working on a computer uh, career, in a computer-related career for so long already. It was very basic for me, but for them it was transformative. It's like, oh, now I can use a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Now I can make that invoice I was telling you about. And that was just me as one person. There was nothing like Cielo yet. There wasn't a team of people saying, hey, you know, we need to empower people with these uh, from the from the professional world, these very basic business tools. One guy was like, oh, señora, maestra, necesito un database. ¿Qué es eso? Right? It's like, ¿Dónde okay. se compra eso? Yeah, ¿Dónde se compra? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. So I was like, okay, first let's take level one. <laughs> this is the keyword. And then eventually we got to the to the database. Seeing those students go through my class and them coming back to me with stories of their success was way more gratifying than anything that I had been able to achieve then. And by then, 
I had already been, um, I'd been the first at a lot of things. I had already worked for the president of the United States. I had been to meetings in the Oval Office. I had worked for the largest international corporation in the world, which at that time was IBM Corporation. And helping these people was more satisfying than any of that. So then I I realized, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to take all of the privileges that I have been um, fortunate to receive and share them with people who may never get that shot. I'm going to help them get a shot. I think it's full circle because this is like a phrase that like I hear a lot of uh, like parents say. For example, they're like, "Cuando cuando crezcas vas a entender." Like if you're like a, if you have a, when you have a child, you're gonna understand. You know, like wh- like why are you telling me this as a, as a son? You know, oh, when you're an older, when you're a father, you'll understand. Or like when it comes to like certain stuff in life, right? That adults have to face, and then you have to go through it. But as young people, we don't really don't appreciate it in the moment as much until we either go through the rough or we actually we process it and it takes time right to process certain things you know let's take it back your youth you know mm-hmm. because you've obviously taken you've talked about your achievements and you know and you're right on a paper it looks great but we want to know more about you as as a person. You know, we want to know you more as, as as a woman, more as a Latina, more as an individual. Sure. Earlier, I talked about my commitment to helping others achieve self determination, and self determination is a very vague phrase. Right? That could mean anything. <laughs> but essentially, the way I understand it is that it means having the the freedom to choose what you want to do, the freedom. And what you choose to do is your business. You you might want to be a stay-at-home mom. You might want to work at, I could have worked at that first job for 30 years. They told me, oh, you're, you know, you're very valuable here. We can see you having a 30, 40-year career here. And this time, you know, I'm thinking 30, 40 years, that's crazy. (laughs) But there were a lot of people who did that. Mm -hmm. But whatever I wanted to do, it was important that I have the freedom to choose that, that it not be dictated by somebody else. By somebody else telling me, you have to do this. You have to do that. You can't do this. And growing up Latina, hearing the word can't was like the whole first 15, 20 years of my life. And I think that's true for a lot of Latinas because oftentimes our dads tell us all the things we can't do. Mm-hmm. Right? Can't go to that party. You can't be out after that hour. You can't talk to certain people. So when you're a young woman and you're hearing can't over and over and over and finally you get sort of a, you get a shot or you get an opening to do something that that you like and you can and you get a taste of like oh wow this is what it feels like to be yeah, you have this agency what it is like yeah. to be a boy i don't know <laughs> right but yeah some agency exactly some freedom it feels good mm-hmm. and you want to keep doing that you want to maintain that control over at least your own destiny and there are so many women, so many Latinas, young and old still, who have never felt that. Mm-hmm. And I recognize it at times through our work with Cielo because one of our questions that we ask new clients is what they dream about for themselves. Right? Where do they see themselves five years, ten years? 
And the most common response we get is that they've never been asked that question. Yeah. I asked my mom that question like two weeks ago. Your mom, when you were a kid, like, what did you want to be? What was your dream? She's all like, you know what? I never thought about that. And I was like, dang, you know, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's, that's still true for a lot of people. So when, right, it, it was crazy when you first hear it and you've done it for yourself and you recognize like, wow, some people have never had that opportunity to dream, right. to, to, to envision a future that looks the way they want it to look because they were given the opportunities to set that up. And so that's really important to me. And I learned this lesson Probably the hardest way, one of the or one of the hardest ways anyone can learn it, which is that there was a period in my youth where all of my freedom was gone, mm-hmm. all of it, um, not just because my father was strict or anything like that, but also because I became involved with a, a boy, young man, as my boyfriend, who ended up being um, very controlling, mm-hmm. very jealous extremely possessive to the point where our relationship culminated in violence, um, violence against me perpetrated by him. We were in a violent relationship and uh, this was when I was in the 10th grade. And from the moment of the first time that he struck me, he became the person in complete control of everything about my life from what clothes I could wear to school, which boys or girls I could talk to, which path I could walk to class or from class, where I can sit for lunch in the, in the cafeteria, where I could sit for lunch, um, which parties I could or couldn't go to. And this was beyond, this was, this was beyond anything I had ever experienced, even with my own parents. I mean, my, my parents were the traditional strict Latino parents, but they weren't they didn't imprison me. Mm-hmm. They didn't have me in a cage. And in this situation with this relationship, I was literally in a cage. Um, I would get out of class. For example, walking, just walking from one class to another, I would get out of class, and he would be right there outside of my door of that classroom, basically to escort me. If you can call it escort. Right. But it was more like, more like a prison escort, not like... Yeah, with the chain and balls and everything. Yeah, handcuffs. That, basically, yeah, to escort me to my next class. And when I would get out of that class, he would be right there again. One time I was in class, and I was talking to a student who sat behind me who happened to be a boy, and we were talking about, about the class, about one of our assignments. When I turned away, so I, he was sitting behind me, so I was turned around, right? You can imagine I'm looking back, mm-hmm. sitting at my desk, I'm looking back. When I turned back around to face forward, I noticed something out of the corner of my eye, so I looked over to the window, and there was my boyfriend standing outside the window of my classroom, like stalking me, basically, yeah, basically. watching my moves while I was in class. So he was cutting his classes just to follow me around and monitor my everything. Of course, as soon as I got out of that class, why were you talking to him? What were you talking about? Are you cheating with him? These things that I'm thinking, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. There was no, there was no room for me to fight it because by that point in time, the violence had already begun. And I knew that if I argued with him in front of everybody at school, then I was going to get it Mm -hmm. as soon as we were alone after school. 
And this was a big school. It was a, well, for the for that day and age, it was a big school. It was probably 2,000 students. So there were about 500 kids in our class, in our, in our grade. Right. He was a little bit older than me, which I later found out. Um, I later found out that he had been held back a couple of times, way back like in elementary school, which isn't really the issue because people can be held back for a lot of reasons. But what I didn't recognize was that he was so much older than me that we were actually technically in different legal standings. Like I was still a minor. He was no longer legally a minor, which I didn't know. That might have given me, like it might have triggered something in my mind that young age of like, hey, maybe this guy's too old mm-hmm. for me. Because I remember being in ninth grade, tenth grade, and thinking, you know, anyone over eighteen was like, ugh, right? like they're just like too old. Those are grownups. I don't want to date a grownup. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a lot of information about him that I didn't have when we first started dating. I didn't learn it until after the fact. Right. Um, and also, there was a lot of peer pressure when I was in in high school in the ninth grade to have a boyfriend because. Apparently, that was the thing every girl in high school was supposed to do, is have a boyfriend. And we're very harsh on ourselves. Um, Society is very harsh on young ladies about what their worth is based on how attractive they are or they're not, right? There's a pecking order where if you're, you know, very attractive and all the boys want to date you, you're supposed to be some kind of an icon at your school. And if you're on the other end, school's a nightmare. Yeah, if you're true. on the other end, school's a nightmare. And so I was in, somewhere in between. I definitely wasn't at the top end uh, by no means. So there was so much pressure for me to have a boyfriend that by the time I got to the end of ninth grade and I was still the only girl in my friend circle that didn't have a boyfriend, it was kind of like, okay, well, who is there? Mm-hmm. And this young man, this boy, had been talking to me all the way since the beginning of ninth grade, right? flirting and sending me notes and so in an effort to raise my worth amongst my peers, my brain said, well, he likes you. He apparently wants to be your boyfriend. There are no other prospects. Let's just be his girlfriend. Like, I'll just be in this relationship. Looking back at it now, I can see how, how first of all, how sad that is, that that was the way I chose whether to even be involved with this person. We didn't have any classes together. I think we had, we had one class together. That was it. So I didn't know anything about what are his academic interests or what are his plans. Nothing. Nothing useful. Just, oh, he's cute. He's showing interest. I don't want to be one of those girls who doesn't have a boyfriend, so I better just say yes. And so I got on the boyfriend train with all my friends. And the first couple of months, it was all whirlwind romance, right? flowers and candy and dances and it seemed like it was great until until the first time he saw me talking to another boy probably in class or in the hallway I don't know where he saw me talking to him and I was laughing and we were probably joking around right just a friend of mine I was just laughing with the with the guy about something I honestly don't even know what we were talking about it was that inconsequential and as we were walking to class, out of what felt to me like out of nowhere, he said, why are you talking to him? Why are you talking to John? Don't you know John's a player? Ugh. Like he's just started yeah. giving me this whole spiel of all these reasons why I shouldn't be. Don't ever talk to him again. Okay. But, all 
all right, that's an easy, fine, not a big deal. But then from once I gave in to that first, the very first time I gave in like that, then it was just every day, new rule, new layer, new control, where finally about three or four months into it, I, I couldn't take it anymore. I felt like I couldn't take it anymore. I felt like I was in a straitjacket. Going to school was worse than being at home. And school had always been my favorite place to be. Like your friends are there. I was good at school, so I liked it there. And for the first time in my life, going to school, I had like a knot in my stomach every morning. I didn't want to be there. We're at, we were hanging out after school. I was hanging out with some girlfriends. I made it very, very uh, clear to him. that I was always hanging out with girls. And I took that upon myself to make sure I, he didn't catch me, see me with other boys. And then when he did with that, that one boy, he saw me talking to him again another time. Because you know what? It's really hard not to talk to people you have class with. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just ridiculous. He said, you know, come here. I want to show you something. And he made it seem like all romantic. I have this surprise for you. He tricked me. Uh, I followed him. We walked to a part of the campus where there was nobody around. And as soon as we were away from everybody, he started with all the interrogation and the questions. And I was totally caught off guard because I thought, I was thinking, oh, I'm going to get flowers or chocolates or some, surprise something. Or something. Right. Yeah, some surprise. But no, instead I got this interrogation, all these accusations, and when I decided to say enough is enough, like, no, I, I can't do this anymore, I want out, he hit me. He struck me. Uh, he struck me across the face. I fell to the ground, and I was in complete shock because I couldn't believe that had just happened. That had never happened to me before in my life. Uh, I remember reaching up to touch my face, and there was blood on my fingers, so he hit me pretty hard, and while my head was spinning, right, trying to think, like, how do I get out of here? Because mm-hmm. it was like flight or f- fight or flight. Mm-hmm. I was like, how do I get out of here? Which way's up? I heard him crying. I heard him crying, and within a couple of seconds, it was the whole, oh, babe, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. That's not what I meant to do. Da, da, da. And I think a lot of Women, even young women, will be nodding their heads if they hear this because that's how it starts. Yeah. And it becomes a pattern over and over. And after every altercation, that's the response. Now, that lasted for many months. That was probably November, October to November of my sophomore year, my 10th grade. And that lasted all the way till the end of my 10th grade. There were times when I tried to break off with him, break it off with him, break up with him, tell him all the reasons. Because here I was trying to use logic with someone who clearly had no need or use for logic. Mm -hmm. Nothing that was happening between us by the spring was logical in any shape or form. So I'm trying to give all these reasons very uh, uninformed. I was very ill-prepared, ill-equipped to have those conversations. And as the, the more I tried to break up with him, the more violent he became. And then he started adding threats to the violence, like threats against my family, um, threats against my brothers and what he would do to them if I stepped out of line again. And my brothers were younger than me at that time. They were my, to me, they were my baby brothers. And I just... I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine 
how horrible it would be if, if he got to them. And he knew where to find them. My 15, 16-year-old brain thought, well, if he loves me and he'll hit me, because I thought he actually loved me. Right. If he loves me, with air quotes, right. he loves me and he'll do this to me, imagine what he would do to them. So I kept playing the role of that, like that protect or like that line between him and my family. Now I have a dad and I do have a mom and people have asked me over the years, why didn't you tell them? So many reasons why. Not good ones, which I recognize now, but at the time when I was 16, I couldn't see that they weren't good ones. One was I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed and embarrassed that this, was happening to me. I couldn't believe I found myself in this situation. I had always been the girl in school who was like the smartest, who got the best grades, who was going to go to college because I had always planned to go to college. And now I was this girl who was completely at the mercy of this young man with no control whatsoever. So I was ashamed. I was also scared. Uh, I didn't know how my parents would react. I'm very fortunate I never saw violence between my parents. And not a lot of people can say that from that generation. And yet I was still scared because I saw it all around us. My uncles, my aunts, right? grandparents. So I thought, well, if I tell my parents this is happening to me, this is going to be the thing that turns them violent. Like This is going to be the straw that makes my dad lose it. Maybe not on my mom, but on somebody. Mm-hmm. He's going to go kill this guy. I always imagine that's what my dad's response would be. He's going to go murder this guy. He's going to kill him. And then what? The guy dies. My dad goes to prison. We're just out there. No dad. Right. Bigger effects than that, yeah. Right. It's just like, it was just all like a spiral. Mm -hmm. It just spiraled into something worse and worse and worse. And then we wouldn't even have dad around. Now, that is a 16-year-old girl's thoughts. Mm -hmm. Now that I'm older, I can see that there are many ways I could have handled this. That wouldn't have resulted in that. But you don't know when you're 16. You don't know that, that, that there are options. You just can work from what you've seen. So I thought, okay, so for all those reasons, I never told anybody. Finally, finally, towards the end of 10th grade, I confided in one of my girlfriends. Thank you if you're out there, Vanessa. I confided in her. I told her what was going on. I told her I didn't know what to do. And I thought, she's going to have an answer because she's in 11th grade. She has experience. And I told her we were alone. We were driving somewhere, and I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, they're all like that. Belinda, they're all like that. And my heart just, like, sunk. Gave me ideas about what she had seen. It started to make a lot of things click and make sense with my other girlfriends and what I had observed with them. And, of course, I wanted to scream in disbelief, like, this cannot be true. Mm-hmm. This, this cannot be all I have to look forward to is, like, this endless stream of violent relationships. This, this can't be right. Like, my brain was like, no, this, this can't be. Which was also terrifying to recognize in its own way. But it also made me think, well, if this is it, then I got to get out of this one. Mm-hmm. I just got to get out. And then I'll just stay out. If I can just get out. I don't need this again. I don't need, if this is what love looks like, again with my air quotes, (laughs) then I don't need it and I don't want it. It's not, this is not good enough. This is not a good enough way to live. So then started the uh, 
struggle. That was probably April. Yeah, it was April. I remember it was right after the spring dance. It was April. And I started up with the conversations again. And the fighting happened again. This time I started looking for help from other groups. Like um, domestic violence hotlines. Every once in a while there's a flyer somewhere. You know, you see it like in a grocery store bulletin board back then. And We didn't have social and we didn't have a lot of stuff that, that people have access to now. Thankfully, you have access to that. But at the time, it was kind of like, I'm leaving the grocery store, and I see a flyer, and I'm like, okay, 1-800, you know, I'm memorizing the number mm-hmm. on the way out. It was like being a spy in a movie. Like, you couldn't let anybody know what you were thinking or who you were talking to. So I memorized the phone number, and I remember being in my room, and I started to dial it. I got on the phone, I started to dial it. And then I thought to myself, wait a minute, this says... Domestic violence hotline. Okay, domestic violence. That means violence in your house, mm-hmm. in your domicile. Well, it wasn't in my house. Like it was violence, but it wasn't happening in my house. It was happening at school. And I thought, well, if I call them, are they going to think I'm talking about my dad? Because mm-hmm. I'm not married. This is talking about violence between like married people. Fast forward 20, almost 25 years later, I was at a fundraiser for a women's shelter here in Orange County called Human Options. I was listening to a speaker at the dinner, and she talked about this program that they were rolling out in different high schools in Orange County to combat teen dating violence. Wow. And my brain just lit up like fire. Like Teen dating violence, that's what it was. That's what I was experiencing. And I didn't have those three words together at the age of 16 to be able to get on the phone and call this hotline and say, help me, I'm struggling with teen dating violence. That's the phrase. So if anyone who hears this finds themselves in that situation, that is the phrase that describes what's happening. Because it's not happening in your house. So it's not domestic violence. You're not married to the person, so it's not... Um, Marital. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, grown-ups don't take teen dating relationships very seriously. That's the other thing. They think, oh, you can just go. That's not your husband. Right? <laughs> it's not even your fiancé. Just walk away. But when someone's controlling you, even at school, what would that mean for me to walk away? For me to not go to school? Right. That wasn't going to happen. Like Then my all my dreams would be killed. Because right? those were my dreams back then. He wasn't going to stop going to school if I, you know, just said, hey, leave me alone. So I just didn't have the language. Had I had the language, maybe it could have stopped sooner, but I didn't have it, and now I do. So whenever I have the opportunity to help people learn about that phrase, I take it. And this is not only to help young women, but also to help young men. Mm -hmm. Because people ask me now, oh, I just realized I didn't finish the story. So April, (laughs) in April I decided... This has got to end. Right. It took a few more weeks of, hey, I don't want this. I don't love you. I don't love you. And that's really hard to say to somebody. It's really hard to say, I don't love you, when they have convinced you that that's everything they want from you. I just want to stop hurting. That's all I wanted. There was a lot of yelling and a lot of crying. And then one day at school, after, one, after a night of one of those fights, One day at school, I saw my, who I was trying to make my ex-boyfriend, my boyfriend, 
talking to some girl in the parking lot. And it looked kind of flirty to me. She was smiling a lot, and he was smiling in this way that I hadn't seen in forever since the beginning. I saw that, and I thought, oh, good. Yeah. Good. She's going to be my out. Mm -hmm. And so I never acted like it upset me, nothing. I was just like, go, right? Go with her. I don't even care. Now, I wasn't mature enough to think she's going to be the next victim. Right. I wish I had been. And she probably was. And I know that there have been other victims from this guy since then. But I didn't have the maturity yet to think about others like I do now. I don't know what happened to them. But I know that the next time I saw him and we had the talk, he was like, all right, okay, okay. And I'm thinking, yeah, because you know you're going to go and, th- and now yeah. you're going to, right? Now you're going to sink your jaws into her. That's fine. I don't know her. doesn't matter. I just want to be safe. And that was uh, about the middle of May of my 10th grade year. It was finally, finally over. To this day... I haven't talked to him again. He's still free, still out there. The last I heard, he still lives in the city where I graduated from high school. And my own friends and family, whom I finally revealed this to, because I never told anybody while I was in high school. I didn't tell anybody in my family. I didn't tell my brothers. I didn't tell them when I was in college. I didn't tell them after I got married. I didn't tell them until about five years ago, which was now... 25 years later. They always say the same thing. You should have told us. You should have told us. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You should (laughs) have told us. That's number one. The second thing is, I would have killed him. Yeah, the reaction. The reaction, right? Especially from the men. Mm -hmm. My dad. I would have killed him. I would kill him right now. And what I had to explain to them, and and I happily share now with any male friends, or even my husband that might have feelings about what I went through. What I can tell them now is that that's not what what I or what women in the situation, that's not what we want. We don't want anyone to go and kill the person. That's for the movies. That's a drama that sells, right, downloads and stories like that. What we want is for it to stop. We just, we want it to stop, and we hope, ultimately, that that person gets help because the the young man, he was also a victim. I couldn't see him as a victim in those days because I thought I was the victim and he was the perpetrator, right? In the very binary storytelling world of the United States of America, there's always a good guy and a bad guy, Mm -hmm. right? Or a good person and the protagonist and the antagonist. And in my experience of that story, I was the protagonist and he was the antagonist. So... Anything bad that happened to him, he deserves it. But that's not really true. The truth is, he learned that behavior. He learned it from his own dad. And he had to endure it and see it play out at home as a child. In his mind, that was the only way to respond to tension. He didn't have any uh, advanced communication skills, relationship skills, any of the skills that really we need to be successful in any environment, not just in our family life, but imagine if you went to work and every time, right? Yeah, confrontation. Every time there's a confrontation, you're just like, bam. You would never have a job. (laughs) No, no, no. Right? He was also a victim, and I was the target. I ended up being the target of all of his 
pain. All of his pain was directed at me, and then I'm sure it was directed at the next person. And I know for sure it was directed at people after that because I've heard about it since then. Yeah, there's a saying that goes, uh, hurt people, hurt people. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. For any any men out there who discover that a woman in your life is on the receiving end of this kind of treatment, the answer is not to go murder the guy. Right. It's not to kill the guy. First and foremost, help make it stop. Right? Get her safe. Learn the language to be able to talk about it. And if it's at all possible, get that person, the perpetrator, get them some help. And, and nowadays, I mean, it's not just male to female. It could be female to male. It could be, you know, if the couple is um, homosexual or, you know, there's all kinds of orientations. There's no, it's not black and white like we thought it was. It wasn't even black and white then, but we thought it was black and white right. a generation ago of like, it's always man perpetrating violence against a woman. And that's just not even true anymore. But whomever is the perpetrator also needs help. They need just as much help, if not more, than the, the victim who I now call the survivor. Oh, that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything's learned behavior as well. So that's right. We obviously want the women to be helped. But yeah, as gentlemen, we want to know when these things happen and you know, what suggestion would you give to, to young women that are listening to your story? Because um, you were not, you didn't vocalize it back then necessarily. And nobody really maybe paid attention. Maybe like now we do, I guess. How would you, how would you help gentlemen understand what kind of signs, let's say their sister is giving away or their girlfriend or their friend that's female. Mm, like, what are the signals? Yeah, what kind of signals can we get, you know, that we'd be like, okay. If they don't tell us verbally, like, hey, you know, I'm being abused or, you know. Um, some of the signals are being very secretive. Okay. Being very secretive, like not necessarily sharing where they're going or who's going to be there. Um, being extremely secretive about maybe their phone. Mm. Right? It has to be locked all the time. Um, so unless they work in cybersecurity, nobody's phone has to be locked all the time. Right. What about digital? Having, having a boyfriend yeah. that doesn't come around the family. Right, keeping him like at at bay. If they're keeping him at bay, there's a reason. There's a reason. That reason is either within the family, or it's him. Mm-hmm. So, and I did that with this guy. I kept him at bay because he was bad news in my little life. Then he was bad news, not because I was a. Uh, ashamed or nervous about my parents and you know a lot of young people feel like their parents are embarrassing right you're growing up you're just learning stuff oh don't do that if any any person right doesn't like i said earlier it doesn't have to be just a young man but someone you're dating if any person says something to you or treats you in a way that you wouldn't tolerate someone doing to your best friend that's a sign right there I think, especially for, for young women, for girls, we are more willing to stand up on behalf of our girlfriends, oftentimes, than for ourselves. Like, we'll take more abuse than we will allow someone else to dish on our friends. Because our, our love for our friends is so deep. Right. So I, sometimes I, I try to play that out in my mind, thinking about like, my best friend in high school, her name was Becky. 
Rebecca. We called her Becky. And I think about, okay, the, the young man she was dating, and I try to imagine if I had ever seen him treat her the way I was treated, like, there's no way right, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do something, right? There's no way I wouldn't stand up for her. I didn't see that. And I didn't let her see what was happening to me. But once I did later tell her when it was all over, she was like, you know, oh, my gosh. I can't believe you didn't tell me. What do we need to do? And she was very supportive. She's like, you never want to see him again? If he's somewhere, we'll just leave. She was in it with me. Kind of like um, the same way. I think I think it's very similar in addiction programs. Like you're supposed to have like a sponsor or, a buddy, or somebody that is with you. Like if you need to get out, they'll go with you. Mm-hmm. Right, so you're not like the oddball out or whatever. Right. And uh, yeah, one time I remember she and I were at, were at a, some high school thing. I don't know. We were in the 11th grade now. And he showed up, pulled into the driveway with a friend, and she just looked at me, and we didn't have to say a word. She's like, you know, she just nodded her head like, let's go. He just jumped in her car and drove away. Yeah, not, not talking to anybody, not, okay. not bringing attention to it. When you're young and a girl, you don't want to necessarily bring attention to things. But again, back to your cyber question, mm-hmm. right, or your digital. Anyone who will say things to you in writing, in text, on the phone, that you would not accept being said to your best friend, that's a big red flag right there. There's no need, there's no need to speak uh, in a way that denigrates anybody. We appreciate you telling us that story, and you know, hopefully our listeners... Um, they're going through it or they know somebody that's going through it they're able to to express it in a certain way like you said you know knowing the vocabulary and if we're gentlemen we're hearing this too um you know also help out our friends like that so yeah thank you for sharing that that story now we do want to ask a signature question that we always ask our um our our guests you know you know if you can talk to a younger version of yourself um what kind of advice would you give you know younger belinda you know either it's a boy or a girl you know any any advice that could be applied universally mm-hmm. the first thing i would say is that there is no reason to rush love mm. no reason at all it is not a race and there is nothing that someone is missing out on if they don't have a boyfriend or a girlfriend before they finish ninth grade or 10th grade or 11th grade or even 16th grade. There's no reason at all. Sometimes we feel very pressured to be in that game, but true love is not like that. True love does not have pressure. It's not on a clock. So there's no reason to chase it so hard that you're willing to sacrifice parts of yourself just to have that status. Mm -hmm. The second thing I would say is it's really helpful to have as developed a vocabulary as you can so that you can talk about things that are happening to you. Sometimes people don't talk about what's happening to them at all but simply because they don't have the words, the words for it. I don't care if those words are in English or Spanish or some other language, but learning to Expand your mind with ideas and words is really, really important. Sometimes it's life-saving. And last but not least, just to reiterate what I was saying before, is that um, people need help. Mm -hmm. Things are not black and white. Sometimes the bad guy in our story 
is the good guy in his own story. To cast judgment without the full picture is a, is a mistake we make often. It's really important to try and have the patience to stand back and understand the big picture of what's going on. I can't imagine what that young man saw at home growing up. And I'm, I'm glad I can't imagine it. I have to thank my dad for that. I never had to deal with that. But I was already terrified experiencing it out in the, in the public world at school. If I couldn't go home to a safe place, I just can't imagine how much harder that would make life to not have a safe place to go to. And a lot of our, a lot of our family members or community members, that's their reality right now. I think you probably have both heard that the Cases of domestic violence are up mm-hmm. under COVID-19. Yeah, but he's locked in at home, or had been at least. Right. That's a, that's a travesty. Mm-hmm. And all we can do is just help people uh, feel comfortable talking about it with the language and without the judgment. So a lot of times it's the judgment, too, that will stop a conversation in its tracks. All right. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. You know, all these valuable information and, of course, you know, advice to a younger version of yourself but of course i'm also learning Irvin's learning we're all learning so you know hopefully the listeners can grab something from what you said today and apply it you know to life Uh, we really appreciate you sharing that but you know how can they get in contact with you maybe they are going through something that you mentioned and they want to vent or they want to reach out to you how can they reach out to you or the uh the startups as well yeah um they can reach out to me on instagram at libertad for life okay and my uh and the organizations I mentioned are at cielocommunity.org and avanzanetwork.org. Perfect, perfect. There you go, Belinda. So, yeah, listeners, you know, reach out to her if you guys have any questions, want to follow up. There might be a part two or there will be a part two. Let's go. We'll talk to corporate first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we got to ask them. The They're budget. very stubborn at first, yeah. but I don't know. We show them something green with a George Washington in it and they changed mine. So we'll see what's up. Yeah, you know, obviously, if you guys keep supporting with the listens and the likes and all that, you know, they're going to see, okay, they want a part two. That's going to be showing support um, for the guests too. So thank you guys for, for doing that for us. It, it vouches for us for sure. All right. Well, thank you guys again for checking out our podcast here with us against the world. This has been your co-host, Jason Ortiz. This is Urban Mendoza. And take care, guys. Bye.